Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Dungeon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Uh, also, thank you for following us on Twitter. I'm at Jay Beardmore. This podcast is at the Rugby Dungeon. And, of course, there's the Egg Chasers Rugby Podcast at Rugby Podcast, where you can find me, Tim and Phil, ranting about whatever we decide to rant about next. Thank you for all your kind feedback regarding the listener call-in podcast. I think I'm going to do that more often. I think I'm going to open it up to pretty much whoever wants to call in, have a chat about you know how bad Leicester Tigers are or... Whatever, whatever it is that you want to talk about, you can just call me and we can have a good natter about that. Today's natter, though, is with former London Irish head coach, did wonderful things there, doing sterling work at Bath at the, at the moment, an all-round interesting guy. It's Toby Booth. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Yeah, I'm all good. Now, a second time we tried to start this conversation. Where, where on earth are you? Uh, I'm in Bath. I'm actually at the top of Bath, uh, up by the race course. I've been out and about doing a few bits and pieces. We have a down day today. Um, we've had two days of training, a rest day, and then we start our sale preparation for a week tomorrow. Of course, yeah, you're coming up to the AJ Bell. Um, how, I mean, I know you're all professionals and it happens every week, but how draining is it to go through uh, a Bath-Gloucester game, particularly at the shed and particularly playing so well, so well in patches too? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we've had three derbies in a row. We've played extra Bristol and Gloucester, and obviously, we appreciate, you know, the extra bit of emotion that these local derbies have in, you know, in the West Country. But uh, obviously, to in critical parts of the game, but critical part of the season, you want to make sure that, you know, you put a run of games together. And you know, the disappointing thing that we haven't managed to do that. But the encouraging side of that is that we've performed well in patches and, uh, you know, given ourselves chances to win the game. And uh, not many people do that at King's Own. We've got a good record there. It was just disappointing that we couldn't manage our, you know, the game well enough to, to apply enough constant pressure. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about Bath shortly. But, uh, yeah, I thought I'd kick off with this, I don't know if it's a statement or a question. But, you know, interestingly, it sounds like you could have been an electrician, a lecturer, but... It, uh, or a lecturer, but instead you were uh, decided to co- to be a senior coach at one of Europe's most prestigious clubs. Has that roughly <laughs> summed up what's happened so far? Yeah, I've done it. It's probably a bit of, um, I was a professional rugby player um, at Blackheath, you know, alongside uh, doing my uh, undergraduate and and teaching stuff at St Mary's. But uh, yeah, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. <laughs> uh, and what was so was uh, you know the whole electrician angle was was that just in case this coaching lock didn't quite work out? No, basically it was about in the sense of my father works in the construction business. He works in the in marine steel, 
And uh, I went to a grammar school, played too much sport, didn't get the qualifications I needed. So it was about out of necessity, really, what's the next best thing? Um, at the same time, I was still very committed to sport, um, which was the reasons that I didn't do as well academically as I did. So I did things the wrong way around, really. I went and basically got a profession and then went back and did my academic stuff uh, a little bit further down the line. Excellent. So uh, so what, uh, what were your days back in Blackheath like then? Well, I, I was I've actually I played in Blackheath. I was born in uh, in Folkestone in Kent, right by uh, the closest point to France you can get. So, <laughs> any there was it was basically a football area above anything else. Well, I say football. There's no there was you know junior rugby, junior football. The closest decent football was probably Gillingham, which was away. Uh, and Blackheath was the uh, the most prestigious club that was closest. So you know I had some success in you know county and divisional stuff and. Blackheath asked me to go along so you know that's how I ended up there and you know I was a, a one club man from, from that point onwards and spent a long time there captain the club which I felt pre- very privileged to do um, and played with you know people like Mike Friday etc and, and uh, Matty Stewart and people like that and uh, John Gallagher and, and you know enjoyed my rugby very much and that gave me the ground in uh, you know basically to want to use what I learned there and, and, and probably put it into a career where I'd probably underachieved a little bit. So that drove me into sort of, I've always had a love of the game and love coaching mm. because of the responsibility of being a captain and, you know, that sort of naturally evolved in down the coaching route, really. Why did you feel that you underachieved? Oh, just only from an academic point of view, really. Okay. It was, it was in a, yeah, and obviously from a, from a, I was pretty, uh, committed on the pitch had a lot of uh, long-term injuries so you know I, it was it was almost like I didn't get opportunity to quite get where I wanted to go so you know talent needs trauma and uh, <laughs> that, that trauma drove me to to want to wanna get on and, and do bigger and better things. So for you it was always going to be after I've hung up my playing boots I'm going to go into coaching I'm going to pick up the whistle and go and go and teach lads how to play. Uh, it wasn't as it wasn't as marked as that. It was probably the fact that at the time, whilst I was still playing, I, uh, you know, I started coaching the university team. They got to a couple of booster finals. I started involved. I, got, I coached England stu- uh, universities, England students on their program. Um, I then obviously, I started to you know plough a furrow in, into coaching, and then obviously a natural progression came along after the undergraduate stuff when the England academies came on board. So, you know, it sort of fell into place nicely, really. The timing was good. Yeah, so how did you find your way into the London Irish setup? Because I think that whole London Irish team and what you guys achieved is one... I mean, I think London Irish fans appreciate what you all did, but I don't think it's near, <laughs> yeah. nearly appreciated enough in, in wider rugby circles. Well, the, I, I ended up getting there because... Uh, Effectively, a friend of mine, a guy called Mark Mark Percival, who who basically was uh, from from the area, he said uh, that these jobs were coming online, and he, he made me aware of it. So I applied for the job along with uh, Corin Palmer, who is uh, uh, works for the Premier, works, still works for Premier Rugby now. So mm-hmm. we we became the academy managers at at London Irish, and um, obviously London Irish wasn't uh, financially. You know, a, a massive club didn't have massive support. He had some good local Irish businessmen that were were committed to it. So we were f- basically tasked with uh, with uh, making London Irish sort of 
a competitive force and develop their own talent to to enable us to you know to be competitive and you know it was a long term project and we saw uh, it was the onset of, a, of the academy so we, there was quite a lot of uptake quite quickly yeah. and that's where you know we found the likes of Dellen Armitage, Tops Joe, the Kennedy you know they were the sort of Nils Moore they were the you know, probably the first entourage of players that we you know that we work with and. You know, by the time we'd finished all of that, we'd got up to sort of fifty percent of homegrown talent, and and became a uh, you know a force in in the Premiership rather than just someone that was hanging on for relegation when we got there. So that obviously evolved for me into a senior coaching role. Gary Gold gave me my opportunity to step up from the first team, in particular from a forwards point of view. And then when he left and Brian Smith took over, he offered me the assistant coach role. So that's basically the progression through Irish. And he left and went to England. I um, I then obviously took over the reins and had four, four slash five years there as head coach. Premiership final, uh, European Challenge Cup final, produced a, a large amount of international uh, players, the programmes that we run. So, yeah, I'm very proud of that. Excellent. So you were literally... The fir- in the first tranche of academy coaches, this is a brand new thing. Yeah, it was the first thing. So the academy coaches, which were then uh, England Rugby funded, uh, they basically appointed. Uh, it's almost a collaborative thing between the club and the, and and the country. Mm. To uh, I think Wasps went first. I think Wasps were first to go, and we were second. I think so. Alan Powell, who uh, and. Uh, Rob took over, Rob Smith took over at Wasps, and they were already in situ, really. And then, but we were a new academy because we did they didn't have academy effectively academy coaches by you know the age grade stuff that they ran. So yeah, everyone then, and that was the onset of the the academy system that you see today. Yeah, because obviously you know the academy has been around for a while now, and I'm sure staff go from one club to another. But when you were doing it, I guess you were just invent, inventing that role at the time. Yeah, and there were lots of teething problems at the start of it. You know, the, you know, simply from the funding point of view, the funding was originally done per head, so everyone went out and got twenty-five players <laughs> because that's what they wanted, and you know, there was not enough quality involved. And then it worked out well, that's not going to work. So you know, there was a lot of teething problems in logistics and how it was run. But you know, we we, we cut our teeth, and and fortunately, a lot of good players came out of that. The onset of professional in itself was always going to you know mean that um we we were going to get up and running and 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 there was going to be an influx of good players if you think that the whole of that was funny I was talking about to someone today about Danny Cipriani Danny Cipriani I'd visit Whitgift and 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 be coaching Richard Thorpe and people like that. and I'd see Alan Powell coaching Danny Cipriani in situ at school and and um you know those things sort of you know, we took for granted at the time. We just went out there and did what we thought was right, and we refined the processes as we want. And you know, a lot of good players came out of it. So, how did you go about identifying your talent um, uh, uh, back in those days? Was it lots of watching schoolboy rugby? Yeah, a lot of that. I mean, obviously, I know you and you watch a lot, and Alex and whatever, and you, and you boys go and you know have got your finger on the pulse on a lot of the age grade stuff. It was no different then. And you know, there's obviously a an eye for talent, a technical bit as influence of the game. And often, I think people often get drawn to the eye-catching moments, but it's sometimes in certain positions, not about the eye, it's what you what they're not seen to do. So, yeah, there is skill and an art to it, I think. But uh, the more you the more you watch, 
you know, the the more you know what you're looking for, and you know, the experience comes into it. But by it's not an exact science, and what you see in someone at 15 and 16, you know, can, can completely change. We took the attitude of, okay, we can improve technical ability, but the one, number one criteria was always going to be attitude and desire. So we took that sort of as our baseline. Mm. And then we'd look at the technical and the ta- we could always apply the tactical side of things. That was the easy part. And the te- you know the, the 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 person you're looking for is you know the person that stood out in their peer group that could do things instinctively, you know without you know without thinking and without um, giving it too much thought process repeatedly. And when you asked them the question why they did that, they couldn't tell you the reason why. And those were sort of the you know the the things where we started with, and then from that we built well in this the positional expertise. This position requires more of this. This position requires more of that, and you know we refined it as we went. Awesome. Uh, so just just basically picking out the, uh, I, I think you coaches call it the unconsciously competent. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. It's exactly that, and uh, you know that's probably as true today as it is, as as it, as it was then. Uh, so going up into the Irish first team, then, uh, I mean, would you say that, that 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 squad more or less was a product of you know, well, you know, you can't compliment yourself uh, too much, but basically, you know, uh, a good crop of youngsters which had been bought through the London Irish Academy. Yeah, well, we ended up, like, as I said earlier, fifty percent homegrown, but. You still need some a good culture and a good group to to show them the way. And we had a lot of you know foreign talent that was good. You know, Mapasua sticks to mind, Clark Dermody, people yeah. like that. You know, that were good, that had good experience, brought different things that you know that the school system and the county system and and the the Northern Hemisphere coaches experience. They brought different things, and I think it made them more rounded. And you know. That if you had the attitude, and you know, we obviously traded on the fact that you know we're viewed as uh, you know the, the new kids on the block, the second class citizens, and the poor me. You know, we, that becomes quite a potent mix because no one gave us a chance, and uh, you know it's always better. Well, history would tell you it's much easier to be a uh, an underdog, a happy underdog, than a happy favourite. Yeah, I mean, I, I I was lucky enough to interview Glenn Delaney, and. It was his view that yeah. if you'd have kept that team together for another couple of years, you probably would have won the thing. Yeah, I, I think that uh, critical time, you know, that's an easy thing to say. I think, you know, we certainly had enough good players for sure. But the thing about, and you see this in professional sport, you, the mental side of the game requires refreshment. And I don't mean from an... And often in in modern sport, it's about, oh, yeah, we need a new coach, we need a new approach, we need to, you know... We need to evolve. We need to, you know, innovation and all these sort of things. But actually, there's a great, there's a great security and and great faith and confidence in consistency and, you know, slow progression. But what you do need to do is competition for places to drive the attitudinal mm. thing, which is the number one thing, the ability and the want to do it. So, I think, you know, I look at the Premiership, the Premiership final side. That team was probably at its best right then. You know, with a lot of those boys at the prime, sort of 27, 28, those youngsters, so Stefan Armitage, Dylan Armitage, those boys, you know, then kicked on to Toulon and whatever they needed a new challenge. And we had boys that were like, like Mapasur, et cetera, and Solosi and, and those sort of boys that were probably just getting to the to the top of the hill. So 
I think that the, the challenge for selection and having people that were want, wanting to kick it on, that, that group had been together for four years, five years, you mm-hmm. know, and, you know, you, your Paul Hodgson's extension would bring relentless energy, but you still need to drive it forward. So the club, unfortunately, weren't in a position financially to maybe invest in a few more players or change a few more players out. And I think, you know, that we paid the price. That is always a downside. The impressive thing for Sir like a Saracens is to relentlessly be in the shake up year on and year out. It takes an enormous amount yeah. of energy, and that energy is fueled on the culture you've got, but ultimately the competition that you've got and the drive that you've got. So you know that's probably it's a different time then. People weren't aware of the mental side of the game as much as they are now, and people always talk about mentality and resilience and all these sort of things. Yeah, and you know people are more educated about them whereas you know it was all about you know maintaining that effort and, and your coaching styles were often around tactics and, and technical and as it's always been and you pay less attention to the mental side even though you knew it was important but you, we weren't educated enough to, to drive that forward and the best way to drive it forward is keeping a freshness in your players and, and your group now, now you mentioned culture a, a few times there if you were to work with a brand new bunch of boys tomorrow, um, how how do you go about setting up a good culture? What are the things that you do? If you could answer that in one sentence, <laughs> you'd be a very wealthy person. <laughs> <laughs> because that, you know, that is the $64 million, you know, the $64 million question. I think it, it certainly it understands that you're part of something. What you're trying to have, it takes a lot of time. It does, without doubt, it takes a lot of investment of time. It takes a lot of relationship building and it takes a lot of honest performance conversations. So you have to have a robust environment that's able to take feedback, good and bad. But you have to basically foster a high amount of trust yeah. and energy. And those are, the, those are probably the three things. So trust, you know, energy are probably the foundations of any culture because when the pressure comes on, those are the two things that are going to be called into into question. So it's really interesting that you say trust because I kind of see a bit of a dichotomy here. I like I do wonder how coaches remain consistent because some lads really appreciate it when you say, look, I'm going to drop you this week because of this and the other. And the theory would be, yeah, he'd, you know, that player trusts you now because you've been br- you know, brutally honest. But I can also see an equally good argument for, for the coach that goes around to all the players and doesn't doesn't tell them that in order to build up their confidence or you know to keep them on board. So it must be pretty hard to stay consistent. Um, I think it all stems. We talk about relationships. So what you're talking about, or what we would talk, of, we refer to as a performance conversation. Okay. So you can't have a performance conversation if you've got no trust, and the trust the trust element is about understand that we've got a job to do as a team and what we're trying to do, but also I'm trying to make you the best player and support you and look after you and get you on your own personal journey as well. So mm. it's basically keeping a team and an individual's agenda aligned the best you can. Those don't always run true. Yeah. But if you understand that you've got a strong enough relationship, a robust enough relationship, you can show general care and build trust with people, you can have those less um, less I suppose enjoyable parts of development which in his failure and change and bits and pieces and understand that that's not going to derail you the moment you you feel persecuted and untrusted and unwork and don't have worth 
those things can get eroded pretty quickly. So how do you have a performance conversation? Uh, and uh, I'm talking about uh, like a critical one here. With a player, you know, say a star fly half who just had a terrible game but relies on his confidence. How, how do you go about doing that? Because, again, you know, I think it's a pretty difficult thing. Well, I mean, the way you describe it, you're making sure, you make it sound like it's always, uh, you know, a top-down conversation. Yeah. The first thing about it is you, the player itself has a, has a clear awareness of what's expected and his own standards of performance. So that's always the basis of where you start. So I, I've... I would say 5% of players, you know, 5 to 10% players max have no inkling that they're going to be dropped. If they're honest about their performance, they understand their performance, they care about their performance, they're self-critical, they're self-aware, they already know that they've underperformed. Uh. But that being said, but that being said... Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're not going to drop someone on a one-off. So, again, the care and trust bit's all about conversations that have gone on in the weeks leading up to that. It's not a knee-jerk reaction, and that's where people use the term form. It's about honesty and and, uh, conversations about trying to make them better, support them. If it's not working, sometimes it's best to take someone out the fire and let them mentally recover give them a program of work that will give them confidence to get them back on the horse as soon as possible. Yeah, so you're almost constantly signposting to players throughout the year. It's not going to be a one-off, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. They sort of know it's coming if, if you've done your job well. Yeah, I think, well, I would say no, it's coming. I think they'll be disappointed. They'd hope it's not coming. Yes. But the, the whole the whole thing is, look, we've talked about this. This is not improving. We're not doing this in the right way. Let's just take a breather here, let you mentally recover and put together a program of work to help you get back to being your very best. Because ultimately, you're you're only an injury away from needing that player. Yeah, true. And ultimately, you know, that some people respond like that. And this is the, the, probably the more complex thing is everyone's different. Some people respond to that. Some people respond to the pressure. Some people enjoy that pressure. Mm. Some people need that pressure to perform. And everyone's different. That's why the relationship there, even though we call it, you know, it's one word, is very different for different people with different coaches. And that's why it's always a team of coaches, not one coach. And some coaches enjoy, people have different relationships with different coaches, which ultimately means different 
types of conversation, different levels of trust, different influences, and that's why the alignment of all these people factors are so critical in maintaining an output and maintaining someone's development. That's absolutely fascinating. So do you have a, a coaching personality in mind that most, that most complements your type of coaching? Um, I think the modern coach has to be more adaptable, obviously, to what, but you know, there's no substitute for knowing your players, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that... Um, you know we are it's all very well talking about players you have to understand what you're good at too yeah and certain players will respond better to that um i think the difficulty is when for example i will always look at um everyone says that they want to be the best player they be and they've got a good attitude and i i struggle with players that talk about it but then they don't i don't see action on the back of it yes so you know, I, I would love to win the lottery, but it requires me to go and buy a ticket. So there has to be some form of behavioural element that comes with it. Yes. So if that's not happening, then you almost let them have enough rope to hang themselves, and that gives you the basis for a different conversation. So I know other coaches don't, you know, will act differently to that. But for me, you know, the, the actions over just words are really important for me, and I struggle potentially with some players that don't do that. So I have to find a different way for those sort of players. Yeah, do you, do you think it's possible to teach a player how to prepare? Because it does sound like there's a lot there's a lot of responsibility on those boys, not just to take the information from you, but then to, but then to go and do it. And like, how do you help? How do you help guide them? Not not tell them what to do, but guide them so they do it themselves. Um, I think yeah, you do. You have to help them with. Uh, with processes to allow them to do that. Um, you have to give them skill sets, mental skill sets, as well as physical skill sets to be able to do that. But ultimately, it comes down to building a performance. So, you know, we want we want the all-court game. Everyone does. Spectators do, fans do, owners do. But we're, what we talk about, the, the price of entry for a performance, let's start with the building blocks of your performance. So, you know, we need good technical ability, so let's work on the technical ability to give you that confidence. Let's get work on the clarity of what's expected to you, whether you're an attack-based player or defence-based. So, you know, I think you, what you do is you build, you know, cornerstones of your performance and cherish those, and that gives you the stuff to then, you know, add the, the I suppose, the, the bits around the edges that make, you know, a more impactful performance. Excellent. So, uh we we were previously talking um, about different types of coaches and like a phase yep. of your career which absolutely fa- which absolutely fascinates me and I guess you know it's still linked into what to what you're doing today is when you got recruited to Bath because looking back at it now that's a little bit of a coaching dream um, a coaching dream team did, did did it feel like that when you walk, when you walked through the doors on the first day I didn't hear the whole of that question because you broke up a little bit sorry. But- um, walking, walking through the first bar was interesting because I'd walked into a very a much more experienced coaching group that I had before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the expectations of the team uh, from its history was, was different. Well, I'd worked with Gary before. I'd never worked with my obviously hats. I'd been I'd coached hats and, and basically given him his his, um, his coaching breaks in the academy and you know and, and worked with him and, and mentored him for a little bit before that. So you know a lot of it was familiar. Um, mm-hmm. What was exciting was the fact that 
we were in a situation where we felt that our um, the ambition of the owner was exactly the same as the ambition of the coaches, and you know that was the exciting part of it. Did you find that aspect of it daunting? Because obviously Irish are a fine team, but Bath have history, and you know there's a lot of expectation. There's nowhere to go. Not really, because obviously when we arrived, they, you know they they were where they were, and you know it takes a little a lot. You have to undo stuff before you you know you put your own stuff on it and. Bath hadn't been successful for a while, to be fair. So no, I didn't. We didn't feel the pressure. The greatest pressure we put on it was was ourselves, really, because we, you know, we we all came with um, proven track records, and we wanted to be the best we can as quick as we can. And you know, that would be no different to we're, we're walking into any club. So you referred to what you found at Bath when you arrived. So was there almost like a sense of they thought they deserved to be at the top, but I don't know to corner phrase. They hadn't paid the price of admission. Um, no, I just think it was um, it was a, just the start of a different regime. You know that they were they were changed a lot of players. You know it was almost like starting again. So no, we didn't we didn't think about that side of things. We we took it at face value, assessed what we had. You know, and if you look at the change in, in, in personnel over the first two or three years, you can see you know that that was the the stepping stones that we required to, to be a more competitive team. Yeah, I always do think with Bath, though, that it's difficult on two fronts. Uh, and you hear this from players, too. One, uh, the expectation, which you've kind of um, kind of gone over. But also, it's su- it's such a small place. And, you know, the people in Bath really expect Bath to do very, very well. That, that there's really nowhere to go. No, that's true. And uh, you see that. You know, but that was part of my motivation for wanting to come here. I wanted to be in... in, in a sort of city club where, or a town club that did care about as much of it as, as the coaches did, and even though you know that can be daunting, and you know the the postman and and the person who works in the toll bridge will have their their point of view as you're, as you're <laughs> going in the supermarket as you're walking around, but you know that that performance pressure, you know, even though it's uh, you know unpleasant at times when it's not gone your way that comes with the territory and you embrace that and you you, know, you want to be part of the fabric of the town so you can't have it both ways that's why well, the great thing about Bath from that point of view is you know they sell their ground out every week they've got a lot of passionate people whether that's misguided you know towards coaches or, or their own opinions but they're an opinionated bunch they care about their rugby they care about their team and that was for us well certainly for myself was a very exciting thing to, to get involved with yeah are you often stopped in uh, in Bath to ask why player X has been dropped, or you know why you chose one line out o- uh, over another? Yeah, of course, people always you know the one thing that you always get in sport is opinion, and yeah. uh, ultimately you don't justify your opinion. You listen and let people have it. And, and you know you you a lot of these the, a lot of the fans are very educated in in their rugby, and and they, you know you listen to their point of view, but. Um, you know, ultimately, we have the idea or the understanding why we've made the decisions we've got, and and often those things, you know, are with the best intent that they what just want their team to do well. So, you know, you take the rough with the smooth in that point. Now, I'm going to change the conversation completely now, Toby. But um, how on earth is a guy with your background a Manchester City fan? <laughs> I'm a Manchester City fan because of what I said earlier in relation to there was no there was no football around uh, where I lived not any you know, I think Hyde Town is the closest and yeah. I have no idea 
where who they play for these days. Um, and there was no rugby, and there was no real significant sport around it. Um, so, and it's probably an insight into my personality. Uh, when I was sort of seven, eight years old, I decided, right, okay, I'd like to do things a little differently. Uh, for my coaching, uh, you know, I like to innovate as much as I can. I certainly have, have done that throughout time, less so as much in recent times. But certainly in my London Irish days, we certainly were guilty of doing things differently, line-outs in a swimming pool and bits and pieces like that. <laughs> and and, and part, of, part of all of that is, I just went, right, okay, so the most prestigious competition is, is this, is the FA Cup. We'll have a look at um, who was successful around that and the last comp- competition. So I basically picked the team that won the Cup in the year I was born, and that was Man City. Wow. Of all of all the years, because I was about to say, you know, how, how on earth did this happen? Because they weren't even good then. But actually, you managed to find no. a time when they were good. Well, to be fair, late 60s and early 70s. So they won their League Cup in 1969 and uh, they beat Leicester City 1-0. Mickey Sonby scored. And I've, got, I've got the programme. So I, uh, I've got the courage of my convictions. Um, <laughs> and that's in the, in the Colin Bell era, etc. And to be fair, my parents were very much just into their sport and they liked, uh, they liked that sort of thing. There was a few England players. So actually, in the early part of it, that at Man City weren't too bad. It's been a pretty rocky journey after that. And my son, who I've brainwashed, has a much more comfortable journey supporting Man City than I have. Yeah, I bet. Um, did you watch last night's game? I did. <laughs> did you? Uh, in fact, with your, with your coach with your coaching hat on now, could you feel yeah. the momentum of that game shift? Um. It was more difficult to feel it shift because obviously of the phonetic start, you know, mm. four goals and whatever it was, 15 minutes. So I think everyone was playing catch-up a little bit. Um, I think that, you know, they paid the price basically for not scoring away from home um, and they were always playing catch-up. And the one thing that you love about Pep that he won't change and he's got his courage of his conviction his team will always play a certain way he's learned a little bit obviously he knows that sometimes he, he, he can't push 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 all the time he learned that at Liverpool it's identical to the Liverpool game at Anfield where manufactured the situation and uh, got a penalty in both games and uh, missed both penalties and it's cost them dear in both, in both cases yeah I mean I thought last night when I was watching it I only saw the second half and I have a sort of rule yeah. when I'm when I'm watching rugby, okay, just to bring it back to, back to rugby a bit. But if a team is absolutely dominant for say ten, fifteen minutes, but gets no points or gets no reward from it, I often think that that team is then destined to lose because there's nothing worse than being dominant yeah. and not <laughs> getting any flow. Yeah, yeah, it's the ebb and flow. Very rarely do you get it all your own, especially when you're you know at the elite level and and what you're dealing with. It's it's really tough. So yeah, you basically got to uh, you know you've got to convert when you've got all the pressure. Yeah, I just thought I've, I've I've seen this far too many far too many times before. As long as you as long as the other team's got a chance and you're doing that well, you're usually in trouble. Yeah, because the disparity's never normally that much. Sure. Now, when when you look over at football, they obviously don't have a salary cap. In my mind, this means it's a little bit easier to coach them because anyone can assemble the best players on earth for enough money. So, two questions on that one. Um, one. Uh, how does the salary cap affect the quality quality of our coaching? Uh, and also, then, how do you go about selecting players to fit into you know that cap? Um, 
there's a couple of how long is a piece of string questions there. There are, aren't so, there? Um, the, the, I actually think it's more complex for a coach rather than simple, more mm. simple, as you as you mentioned it. I think it's because you can't get it wrong. I mean, you have to be very more or very more aware and definite on the sort of players that have the greatest influence mm-hmm. on the way that you want to play. So you need to recruit to a style even more so. Okay. So I think that the skill about getting those right players are even more pressurised, um, rather than moulding a style to a team to a team, if that makes sense. Yeah, so yeah. You, you know, you basically set the philosophy of your team and and recruit and develop to it. And I think that the, because of the wage cap, it's a team A might need certain type of players A and B, and without them, you're not going to function. Yeah. And you know that I think you need to be very definite on the type of players that align to your playing philosophy for one. So that was the first question. And what was the second question? Well, I think you've answered it. I, th- I, th- I think you've answered it perfectly, actually. Which is, um, oh. you know, how do you go about sele- um, selecting players in a salary cap situation? And you know, you, you've, yeah. you've got to be very, very careful, I guess. Yeah, and I also think if you look at the success, the consistent successes in in recent times, so your Exeters and Saracens, uh, you know, they probably teams that have worked that out better than than other teams, and they mm. developed and done exactly that. Uh, now I'm only going to ask you a couple more questions and then I'll let you get on with uh, undoubtedly what is a beautiful day in Bath um, it is yeah uh, but um, you mentioned innovations which innovation are you most proud of oh actually as soon as you <laughs> mentioned that I seem yeah. to remember a story in the back of my head did you make your players dive through a paddling pool in order to get them you know, get, get them used to wet weather training yeah where 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 the training yeah. that's on that's on YouTube still a day in the life of London Irish oh yeah. is it so and that's probably a good example that's the most visible it's um, yeah so we knew that there's uh, wet weather and obviously you've got to try and ma- maintain motivation mm-hmm. um, you'll see Peter Hewitt and his speedos uh, jumping in and out of the pool but yeah so basically we we basically had a a glorified water fight and dunking session and. Uh, we then went and played plays, then we go back in the water, etc. And, and it was really just to emphasise the ability that maybe in conditions like this, how important it is to play. Because we were very much a counter-attack based side that we needed to be respectful of field position and the difficulty that, that the conditions have in your skill set. So sometimes it's not innovation, sometimes it's just an awareness, you know, a, to drive awareness and, and look at solving a problem or, or driving awareness in a different way. Uh, and um, have you ever tried something which has just been a miserable failure? Oh, for sure, Go absolutely on. for sure. And and um, in relation to, uh, I'll think of a specific example. But you know, that's part of we talk about people maximise their talent, and often people talk about the performers in the in the you know in the in the ring, as it were. But coaching is no different. You've got to keep trying to push, push the boundary, push it, the efficiency, and and probably where the innovation's gone out of the game because so one, so many more are students of the game. It's it's more around efficiency than innovation. But these uh. things go full circle. The game's quite sterile in relation to the systems people are using. So I think it's probably due another innovation at some point, and the ones that can master that will probably you know catch a few people by surprise. Okay, Toby, business time now. Um, 
where about going to finish this year and then finish off with where we can find you on social media okay so um, obviously we're still despite our um, inconsistencies this year we're still in the final shake up for the top four so you know, we those results will probably need a, a few to go our way, but we're playing people around us. So, you know, we're still ambitious to, to finish, you know, in that in that top four position. If not there, then very close to it. So that's as far as I'll go from a prediction point of view. <laughs> um, in relation to finding me, if anybody wants to find me, uh, I'm on Twitter and not many coaches are, but I'm on Twitter and uh, the 6 is uh, where you can find me. Excellent. Well, you've got Sale Sharks next. Uh, I'll be at the AJ Bell, so I look forward to forward to catching up with you there. Come and say hello. We're good to see you. No problem, Toby. Thank thank you so much for coming on. Um, and uh, be- and best of luck with the rest of the season. Cheers, mate. Speak to you soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 